since last week, I'd like to always give you some context. Uh, the godless Philistines are occupying and ruling Israel in Israel's own country. The Philistines are seafaring peoples. They came from uh, ancient Greece before it was even Greece. And they just came in along the coast and took over the place. And, and they're ruling. And now King Saul's heroic son, Jonathan, as we saw last time, has attacked one of their military outposts and, and really has uh, and did a, quite a successful job at that. But he stirred up a hornet's nest now. And so uh, because King Saul's son, Jonathan, has started this emancipation, this war for freedom, which won't uh, come to fruition for uh, now until King David's time. But the war has been started now, and that by King Saul's heroic son. And so now let's pick up with that straggler verse at the bottom of chapter 13, verse 23, and we'll read to 14, verse 3. Now a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash, verse 1 of chapter 14. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he didn't tell his father, King Saul. Verse 2, Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was a son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitub. <laughs> ah, yeah, that's his name. Son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. So let's pause there. It's a long chapter if you've already taken a look. We'll make it down to verse 23, Lord willing. Now, if we can learn what not to do by avoiding um, how Saul lived his life and ruining the potential that God had given him and displeasing God, he's really uh, an example of what not to do. Then we certainly can learn what to do to please God and maximize our potential as Christians and Christian service by observing his son, Jonathan. So Roman numeral number one already, we would say, a, uh, Jonathan has a proactive stance. And if you want to be a, an effective Christian, uh, you need to be proactive. Let me define proactive for you. Uh, it describes someone who takes an active role in dealing with something before it needs to be taken care of, acting in advance to deal with an expected difficulty. Now, the bad guys, the Philistines, according to your text there, have gotten into strategic position to guard the pass there, and Jonathan decides to go to them rather than wait for them to come to him. So there in verse 1, Jonathan tells his armor bearer, let's go take care of business now. Let us live offensively on the offense rather than always waiting for it to come to our doorstep. Now, by the way, uh, an armor bearer was for all officers in the army uh, had an armor Bearer, They had to be unusually brave and loyal because they would carry the weapons and assist the officer in battle. And later, God will raise up 
a rather famous and special young armor bearer to King Saul, of all people, and that young man's name will be David. Now, I like this, that Jonathan has the, the chutzpah to, to just say, here they are, they've gathered, they're a terrible threat, they've been oppressing us, there's a terrible need, somebody's got to do something about this, and Jonathan senses the dangerous threat, so he's going to take some action to disarm and to preempt it from getting worse. I love this quote, Oh, the needless suffering of God's people who passively let menacing situations grow rather than doing the courageous thing to confront and deal with the threat head on. That's the stuff of Christian maturity, to be proactive in life and in your faith. Notice the boldness. I love Proverbs 28 and verse 1. It says, The wicked, they flee, though nobody's chasing, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. And of course, you know that the word righteous always has the connotation of being right with God. It's not that the person is morally uh, perfect. It's that they have been set right with God. And when you've been set right with God and you feel a clean conscience and you know that God is with you, who can be against you? You have a lot of boldness. And so... Uh, This is Jonathan's case. Now, I imagine him laying awake one night, just outraged in a righteous anger. The Philistines are oppressing God's people. He gave this land to the the Jews, and here they are saying, we're in your land, and we're ruling you and uh, oppressing you. What was he thinking that night as he lay awake? I'm imagining him thinking of Judges chapter 3 and verse 31 with Shamgar. When he was facing the Philistines, he just took an ox goad, just a sharp stick, and with one stick, he faced an army of 600 Philistines, and, 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 and sorry, but he slaughtered them. I mean, they're the bad guys, they're oppressing, they're coming in, just picture them as, as terrorists coming in, and he took a stick. And he did away with 600 of them. And I can imagine Jonathan just saying, the spirit of the Lord will be upon us because that is his will, that, the, that his people enjoy the land and the freedom that he has given them. In Leviticus chapter 26, perhaps he's thinking about this scripture. You will pursue your enemies and they will fall by the sword before you. Five of you will chase a hundred. And a hundred of you will chase 10,000, and your enemies will fall by the sword before you. So, you know, Jonathan's one of these guys who actually believes the word of God. He really does, and, and he's stirred up. So faith in God has prompted him to trust God and to take action, and the two of them head off to the enemy outposts. And your text says right there from the start, he doesn't tell his father because King Saul just would have shut him down and said no, because we're going to see that that's just the case. Faith needs flame, not a wet blanket. And we share our dreams with those who might encourage them along, not dash them to pieces. And so Look at King Saul. The verse tells you right there. He's quite the contrast to his heroic son. Verses 2 and 3. King Saul is staying. The word in the Hebrew is 
also sitting, it's the sitting or staying, under a pomegranate tree. So what is he doing now? Well, his son is going off to rid the Philistines of their horrific uh, oppression over God's people. He, King Saul, is kicking it with his friend, the army chaplain, the priest. Okay, you can picture him as an army chaplain. They're enjoying the shade. They're sitting down. They're eating exotic fruit, being refreshed under a pomegranate tree. Now, uh, at first it may seem spiritual that Saul has a chaplain by his side, when well, we call him the priest here in the text, but Jonathan had an armor bearer and his father has an ephod bearer. Now you remember the ephod, as we've said many times, the garment on the high priest that was sort of the apron in the front and it had the pouch and inside were those two uh, stones, polished stones or, or lots, little straws or uh, little twigs or something that helped the priest discern God's will. And so he, he had uh, somebody to do connecting with God for him. You know, it's like, okay, what does God say now? What does God think about this? You know, he doesn't have a personal relationship with God. You know, it's like a lot of people who I have acquaintances, and so do you, that that make, you know, funny remarks about, uh, you know, make sure you put in a good word for me, you know, and, and they want us to have a relationship with God for them. And they ask us questions, and we don't have any problem praying for them. But it won't do them a lick of good on that great day when they stand before the throne of God and say, you know what, I was BFFs with your people. I mean, I, 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 was, best, <laughs> I was best friends with Pastor Ross. I mean, he lived on my street. We talked all the time. We went out to lunch. I really liked him or her, or whoever. It won't do them a lick of good, and it's not going to do Saul a lick of good. He's got his lucky charm guy next to him, you know, with the ephod. Yes or no? What does God say? You know, Saul, find out for yourself. That's what saves you, is a personal relationship with God. And so he doesn't have that. And the Holy Spirit just really wants you to know that this particular priest in question is not a good one. And how does the Holy Spirit make us know that? This priest's uncle, look in your text, the uncle is Ichabod. Well, Uncle Ichabod from chapter 4, if you remember, was named by Phineas's wife who was dying in childbirth. Uh, and the situation was terrible. 30,000 is, Israeli soldiers had been slaughtered. 30,000. And they took the, the Philistines had the Ark of the Covenant. And they took it away into Philistine territory. And as she lay dying with this baby being born, she said, name him in her last breath, Ichabod, because God's glory is gone. So the Holy Spirit just wants you to know, oh, this guy's uncle, by the way, is Ichabod. God's uh, glory has departed. And don't forget, and, and the Holy Spirit brings up the name Phineas, right? Who, who was Phineas's, who was his, who was Ichabod's dad? It was the wretched Phineas of Hophni and Phileas fame of chapter two. Remember the two priests who were running the show and, and, and the biggest money and sex scandal of the Old Testament. 
accepting bribes and, and, and sleeping with the women who were uh, ministering in the temple. Those were the two boys. That was Phineas. And Phineas got put to death by the hand of the Lord. And then the Holy Spirit says in P.S., don't forget that Phineas's dad was Eli. He's listed there. All because God wants you to know uh, this is a guy who comes from a bad family line that God had already fired their family from being priests. They had disqualified themselves. So he wasn't even a legitimate army chaplain. He's sitting there uh, to no avail because in God's sight, uh, this isn't the way that God had set things up. But Saul, Saul doesn't care. Saul knows. All of Israel knows what happened. Those were public meetings. All they have to do is go back a couple chapters and read it for themselves. It's right there in the Bible. But Saul doesn't care because he's got his lucky buddy next to him with the lucky ephod. Just grab, grab in there and tell me what to do. So Jonathan's on his way to attack the bad guys while his dad, King Saul, is sitting on his bottom, refreshing himself with his uh, personal priest. The nephew of the glory is gone, and from the most vile ministry scandals in the Bible, from a family line that's been disqualified from serving. So the Holy Spirit is just asking you with verses 1 and 2, do you get the picture? And you would say, yes. yes. Okay, then we can move on. <laughs> Verse 4 through 10. Now, on each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the bad guy Philistines, their outpost, there was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Sena. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash and the other to the south toward Geba. Now, Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saying, saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead. I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, come on then. We're going to cross over toward them and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay and, and we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. And so, uh, so we see Jonathan moves forward in a proactive way. And now, uh, Roman numeral number two, Jonathan moves forward seeking confirmation. That's pretty important. When God gives you something kind of extraordinary to do, he always provides lots of confirming signs and confirmation, inward and outward, to uh, let you be uh, living with assurance. So, so the Lord leads these two guys to the perfect place. In fact, I got a picture of it because when the Bible names a place, it's actually there. And uh, that is the actual place, if you take a tour in Israel, which we're going to take a tour. I don't think we stop at this little place, but uh, this is a place you can go. It's marked out on the tour. This is exactly the location that the boys came up through the pass. They were spread out on both sides, and so they were in a, an ideal place for this next event to happen. 
So uh, here's what's going on. Thank you, Sherry, for that. Here's what's going on in uh, this young man's heart. Now, first he realizes, uh, and this is important for us, Jonathan realizes that they have no right doing what they're doing. They have no right to exist oppressing the Israelites. And he calls them uncircumcised. Now, it's kind of a strange thing to call somebody, and he's calling them that for a reason, and it's something I'd like to point out to you. The Jews were circumcised as a sign that of the covenant, the special covenant that God had with them, saying, you guys were not born in the ordinary way, thus the mark. It's a supernatural birth, and, and I have an, a, a covenant, a promise with you. When Jonathan says that they're uncircumcised, he's saying they have no legitimate authority in God's plan. God's not with them. They're in our lives, making life miserable for us, and they have no spiritual right to be there. This is important. Because it gives him great boldness. It's saying, he's saying, we're the covenanted people. This is our land. God has made us uh, heirs. And so he knows his right. And he's bold about it. He knows that they, they don't have any place here. Now, here's a nice quote. Believers would do well to remember when the devil comes roaring and sin seek to dominate, that they are without staying power and authority to oppress. We are the ones with God's power who are heirs to his promises. It's them who need to flee, not us. I like how somebody else put it, uncovenanted things that seek to rule covenanted people are easier to get rid of than most of us Realize, And so he just realizes who he is in the Lord and that they are outside of the promises of God. There are things in our lives that we tolerate all the time. It's like, what are you doing here? You have nothing over me. And, and then we live beneath the promise. And those things are uh, uncircumcised things that you can come after and say, you know what? You don't belong. You don't have any root. You don't have any spiritual authority. And, and you can you know, be aggressive in your faith that way. So he knows his spiritual rights. And notice also his faith is leading the way. He, he could say with James, from James chapter 2, you know, I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You know, ask King Saul and the 600 guys who are with him underneath the shade of the pomegranate and grow. Do you believe that God is able to give you victory and defeat these Philistines? And all of them would, would say a hearty Amen. Because it's one thing to have the right theology that you know that you serve a God who could. But see, Jonathan and the armor bearer serve a God who can and they are believing that and their actions are proving their faith. It's, it's just a little bit of a different way to live. He says it's possible there that the Lord will act on our behalf. After all, God's saving power is not dependent on the size of an army or resources. He, he says it. He says many or few, much or little, it's all the same to God. You know, whether you got five loaves and two fish, uh, whether you, you got an army of 300,000 like Israel had, and sometimes God used 300,000, to bring the smack down on the enemy. 
But then sometimes he used 300. Does he use Paul the scholar? He's the most educated man in the Bible, the Apostle Paul. And then there's Peter. <laughs> Never finished high school. He was, un, he, was un, he was uneducated, Acts chapter 4. Uneducated. You see, many, few, much, little, it's all the same to our God. F.B. Meyer uh, about this passage. Notice where Jonathan had the emphasis. He had little faith in himself, but great faith in God. It wasn't, I can win a great victory with God's help. It was, God can win a great victory through even me. He had the smallest possible faith in himself and the greatest faith in God. His soul waited for the Lord. In him was centered all his hope. And from his gracious help, he expected great things. All he aspired to was to be humble, a humble vehicle through which the delivering grace of God could work. All right, and so now the confirmation begins with the armor bearer. Verse 7 says, go for it, uh, Jonathan, let's do this. I'm with you. So he's, he's checking it out. He's like looking at his armor bearer. Am I crazy? Uh, but I want to go up there. I want to fight these bad guys. And, and you know, God, he could use two guys like us to defeat an entire army. What do you think? And he's, like, he's bouncing it off of him. And his armor bearer says, I'm with you a hundred I, I really like this armor bearer. Pastor David Guzik said this about armor bearers. God was going to use Jonathan, but he wasn't going to use Jonathan alone. Almost always when God uses a man, he calls others around that man to support and help him. They are just as important in getting God's work done as the man God uses. So if you can't be a Jonathan, then find a Jonathan and attach yourself to him as like Jonathan's armor bearer did. His victories are your victories as well. Now, you'll notice the armor bearer is not named. They seldom are. The people who are so important, assisting and helping. But you better be sure of this in heaven. Nothing is concealed. It's all out in the open. And we find out all the names of all the armor bearers who share in the victories they help make possible through their love and their faithfulness. Now, here's uh, Jonathan's bold pro proposal in verses 8 through 10. And here's what he says. Okay, you with me? We've got the Lord. Here's what we're going to do. We'll let them spot us. If they say, stay put because we're coming down, then today's not the day. But if they invite us to continue up the hill to come on up here, if they say, come on up here, guys, that's the sign God is in this thing and they're goners for sure. Well, listen, I, I get his logic. I get it because he's saying, if even our enemies say, yeah, you're doing the right thing. Come on up here. If they, our enemies, give us the green light, keep doing what you're doing, guys. Come on up here. If God puts that in their mouths, then we know, oh, it's a big green light. <laughs> and so they do that, and they get the green light. Now, Jonathan's showing wisdom, not unbelief by asking this. You say, well, he's, he's pulling a Gideon here from Judges chapter 6. No, he's not. 
Gideon already had confirmed words from God. He spoke to, to the angel of the Lord, which is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ face to face. He had his confirmation. He doubted the word of the Lord, Gideon did. This guy has no confirmation. He's looking for confirmation. Jonathan is doubting his own heart. You know why? Because he's a humble, normal human being who realizes, you know what? Though God can do this, he doesn't always necessarily want to do this. Just because I think he should, I could be wrong. So he's looking. He's testing. I like that about him. He's humble. He has humility. And notice, uh, Jonathan doesn't need the whole battle plan, does he? He just he doesn't need, Lord, what are you going to do? What, what's tomorrow, the next day, and then six months from now? He just says, is this one little step part of the plan? Is this good? Shall I do this one little step right here? I like that. And the Lord answers. There, there's a serious distinction between faith and presumption. He's taken a look before he leaves. Another quote from a commentator, when God is with us in an extraordinary event, he will always provide the confirming signs, and it's not unspiritual to ask. Uh, verses 11 through 14. So now both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. So the, the guys make themselves visible. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. Mm -hmm. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Notice that, you know, the hand of Israel, not, not to us. So it's not the Jonathan show. He gets that. His father doesn't, but Jonathan gets it. Jonathan climbs up using his hands and feet. It was hard work. With his armor bearer right behind him, the Philistines fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. So uh, verse 13, notice just by the way that sometimes God's way isn't the easy way. There's a lot of work there. You know, he's just not praying the fire down that somebody else take care of this. But, and not only that, you know, the way up there, they're crawling on their hands and knees. It, it's hard work. So Roman numeral number three, faith in God brings victory. Now, Jonathan knew there was a great need. So that's what's helping motivate him. And Jonathan knew God wanted to use somebody. His dad was busy under a pomegranate tree. And, and Jonathan knew God likes to involve people in his work. So these are four things that really matter. Personal faith in the living God. Personal confidence in his unlimited abilities and power. Personal conviction about what's right in God's sight and personal confirmation of God's will in that specific situation. When you have those four things, you're unstoppable. Verse 11, notice the arrogant self-confidence of God's enemies, the Philistines. Uh, so what happens here? The enemy spots the two men as planned, and the bad guys assume that 
uh, like the other Israelites, that they're all hiding in uh, cisterns and wells and caves from chapter 13. Remember, all the guys are, are terrified. They know they're outnumbered, so they're hiding. And so when they see these two young boys come out, they're young men, late teens, early 20s, and they think they're crawling out of some well. Here come two sad little kids. Uh, They want to desert the armies and come to our side. So there's no threat. We're an entire army. We're not afraid of two guys climbing up the hill. And so they think they're coming to surrender. So that's why they let them get close. But it's two soldiers plus God. Verse 13, uh, Jonathan is bowling them over, knocking them down, and behind him, his armor bearer is taking care of the rest of the problem. Okay, verses 15 through 23. Let's finish up, all right? Then panic struck the whole army, the Philistines, those in the camp and the field, and those in the outposts and raiding parties, and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. Saul's lookouts at Gibeah in Benjamin saw the army melting away in all directions. Then Saul said to the men who were with him, Muster the forces and see who's left us. When they did, it was Jonathan and his armor bearer who were not there. Saul said to Ahijah, the priest, right? Bring the ark of God. At that time, it was with the Israelites. While Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult, the loud noise in the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Saul said to the priests, withdraw your hand. So right there, he's got his hand in. They're praying. He's got his hand in the ephod. He's, he's searching God's will. They're in the middle of the prayer. And Saul hears the commotion. He says, oh, stop. Amen. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We don't need the guidance anymore. Just withdraw your hand. Done. We got enough. We know what's happening. But I'm going to tell you what really is happening, why he doesn't need God's guidance, because he's very anxious to find out who's getting all the glory. Somebody is taking my place. And so, verse 20, we'll finish up. Then Saul and all his men assembled and went to the battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. Those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up with them to to their camp went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel And the battle moved on beyond Beth-Avon. All right, so finally here, Roman numeral number four, the fruit of unbelief is confusion. Now, so often, have you not noticed that so often the way God deals with his enemies and Israel's enemies is to strike them with confusion? Now, I think there's a point that he does that. He did that with the Egyptian army in Exodus 14, and he also did it with the conquest of the land in Joshua chapter 10 and verse 10. Confusion is the fruit of unbelief and the lot of all those who oppose God. Now think about why God does this. I think he's making a statement saying, listen, when you rebel against me, there's no hope of clarity. 
How are you ever going to know anything about anything? Your whole world will be upside down, and it should be, because you're not connected to the source of life. And so all who oppose the truth of God find themselves in utter despair and confusion. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me, which implies whoever doesn't follow me, he says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so uh, you see there in verse 15, God's shaking the earth that he created. So that's not very hard for him to do. Can you imagine when the earth shook how Jonathan and his armor bearer felt that after all of that courage and stepping out in faith and suddenly to realize, wow, we, we, we were right. This is what God wanted to do. He's with us. Wow, what, what a great feeling to know that the Lord is, is shaking up the earth on your behalf. He sends a panic there in verse 15. The Philistines are killing each other. Verse 16, the army's melting away, and uh, Saul and his forces are watching from the safety from afar. Now, what's Saul's big concern in verse 17? It's pathetic and sad. Shouldn't his first concern be, man, the, the armies are melting. Let's get out there and lead the way and fight and join in the battle. That's not his first concern. First concern, number one, call a census. We need to find out who snuck off and did this. Is somebody chasing them from our ranks without my permission? Somebody's going to be a war hero. Somebody's going to be hoisted up on people's shoulders, and they're going to be loving him instead of me. We can't have this. So he says, quick, find out, look around. Who snuck off? Who's trying to steal the glory from King Saul? And then they find out, uh, King, it's Jonathan again. This is the second time he's done this. Well, no wonder this kid doesn't want to tell dad what he's up to. <laughs> and, and so uh, he's uh, so insecure. You know, Saul's insatiable desire, listen to this, his insatiable desire for the applause of men, his relentless insecurity, his incurable envy will now drive him into yet another death spiral. So verse 18, Saul asks for the ark of God, another lucky charm he wants to take out into the battlefield. And he says, should I check with God? And in the middle of the ceremony, as I've already alluded to, uh, Saul breaks it off. Saul's desire to see who's leading the battle and to make sure he gets a little credit is more important to him than a little patience to inquire of the Lord. So he hears the hoopla and he gets all freaked out. Look, look, could you make it quick? They're going to snap a picture of this guy with a sword, whoever he is. Oh, now it's my own son. And they're going to post it. It's going to go on Facebook. Everybody's going to know while you're reaching in, going, oh, did I ask the question again? Oh, uh, you know, I don't have time. Withdraw your hand. Let's get in the picture. That's exactly the kind of thinking he needs to get out. Okay, so they didn't post it on Facebook. <laughs> but you know what? You get the idea. Verse 21, Jonathan's uh, courageous faith and zeal uh, 
is contagious. Look at this. This is so important for us as mature Christians who are out on a Wednesday night listening to somebody teach from the middle of the Old Testament. Listen to me. When we are engaged and living a victorious Christian life, you encourage others around you who are beset with fears, failures, weaknesses. When you are engaged in worship and somebody is struggling next to you, that person is encouraged to enter in. I've been in services where I'm in the worship uh, congregation, and, and I'm just out of it. I'm not feeling it. You know how that happens. And, and, you know, I wish it would, but it's not happening, and I'm distracted. And somebody next to me is like, thank you, Jesus, Lord. And their hands are up, and you could tell they're really engaged. It's like, oh, yeah. Maybe I should try a little bit, you know, like they were taking it so serious, but I don't know where my mind was, but that's the way it is. When, when, when you're, you, you, you find somebody and the first thing they do in the morning and you happen to be visiting or whatever, you've gone camping or, and they, they take out their Bible and they start reading it and you're like, oh, you do that every morning. Oh, yeah, I can't start my day without the word of God. And you're like, yeah, me either. <laughs> and you're looking at, where did I put that Bible, you know? <laughs> Honestly, we're so, we're so, it is so wonderful to be living the kind of life. Now, all the people are coming out of the holes that they've crawled into. And those, look at your text. It says those who had deserted and went to join the Philistines, they came back and re-enlisted on the right side. Why? Because a couple guys decided, you know what? I'm going to live this faith. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do as God commands, and, and I'm going to be a light and an example. And it just touched people's hearts. That's the kind of life I want to live. And when I get to heaven to say, you know what? You were out there and you were doing your thing and it inspired me. And I came out of a little fear or insecurity or a wipeout because you were relentless and not caving into temptation and besetting sin. And I saw you in all of that struggle. I'm not talking about me now, the you in general, whoever we're talking about. When I see guys from the mission who, who have lived years as alcoholics and, and they're, they're living, uh, abstaining from alcohol and living the Christian life, I, I'm encouraged. I want to I live like that. I want to be as brave and bold as they are. And if they can do it, this, this is the bottom line for that verse. If, if he can do it, I can do it. And that's, a, that's just a beautiful thing to be involved and in verse 23, just for the record, the Bible says, oh, and so by the way, the Lord saved Israel that day. Not Jonathan, but Jonathan, see, that wasn't for Jonathan's sake. Jonathan already knew that. Whose sake is that for? The King Saul's. Because King Saul thinks that Jonathan saved Israel. Because he thinks he does those kinds of things as well. All right, I got five reflections that I came up with for me, and, and I share with you on these verses. Number one, 
They're just quick statements. Uh, Like Jonathan, we need to be proactive in our Christian lives and our service to the Lord, not waiting for bad things to become worse or for threats to be realized, but handling challenges head on, living on the offense rather than always on the defense. Number two, like Jonathan, we need to know our rights as children of the living God co-heirs with Jesus Christ and not tolerate oppression that has no divine authority and thus no business hindering our lives. Number three, like Jonathan, we are propelled forward through simple faith, conviction of God's cause and the confirmation the Holy Spirit provides. Number four, like Jonathan, we will find our spiritual enemies scattering and the devil running for cover as we seek to submit ourselves to the Lord. James chapter 4, verse 7 says that. Submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he shall flee. Lastly, like Jonathan, may the Lord use us as examples that spur on the weak, discouraged, and the fearful believers to get back into the game, into the race, to fight the good fight alongside Long our sub, alongside of us all, contending for the faith as one man for the cause of Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful, beautiful insights and truth that we find wherever we turn in the Word of God. May these truths grab hold of us. Lord, may we be changed as we yield our wills to yours. In Christ's name, amen.